Welcome to the podcast series from the National Centre for Research Methods at the University of Southampton. In today's podcast, Dr Denise Turner from the University of Sussex talks about researching emotionally challenging and sensitive topics based on her PhD research on parents' experiences of the professional response following the sudden unexpected death of a child. I used to be a social worker myself and I used to work within child protection and then a few years after I'd given up work from having my daughter I had twin boys. They were very premature, my twins. My son Dan was two pounds when he was born and my son Joe was three pounds. Um, They were discharged from hospital with everything fine and when Joe was 19 months he died um, suddenly and unexpectedly at night and having been a professional myself I was just very interested in the professional response to his death and to being on the receiving end of that and it seemed to me at the time that a lot of the professionals were actually quite paralysed by the event and, and, and quite unable to show any sort of humanity. They dealt with the processes and not a lot was explained to us and um, we were left really to deal with a lot of it ourselves. So once the dust had settled I began to think about that a lot and I thought that it would be useful to try and do some work around that that might help other people in the future and that also might try and change actually some of the procedures and policies. So what aspects of what happened to you did you then want to go on and look at in more depth? There was something about the police response, that the police response is very alarming. We had a marked police car outside our house and a uniformed police officer in our hallway barring the way for people getting out. And as is very well documented now, I had a a six-year-old daughter at the time, didn't know that Joe was dead, and she'd been sitting in, in the room with him. And it was very important to me that she didn't, she wasn't frightened and that she wasn't alarmed by what was about to happen. So I made the decision to get her out of the house. She didn't know Joe was dead, and I thought I would tell her later, and that would be less frightening for her. Um, but there was a, a paramedic who was and very understandably out of his depth. He couldn't control the situation. He didn't know how to contain me in the house, which was his duty. So he wouldn't let me go, and in the end I, I had an argument with him and took her to school. When I got back, the house was full of police and other people. So there's very much something about surviving children in the house and the impact of that response on them, because nobody thought about my daughter. And if I hadn't got her out, I think that actually the impact on her of of what then happened in her house would have been terrifying, actually, because the baby's room is cordoned off, it's a crime scene, there are forensic people swarming all over the house, and for a six-year-old girl to see that. So there was stuff about that. There was stuff about the procedure, the name that's given to the police. They're called child abuse investigation teams, which seemed to me to be something that could very easily be changed. You know, at the point that somebody's just found their child dead, to have that kind of intervention with that word attached to it is very difficult. And also, when Joe died, the child becomes the property of the coroner, so the, the coroner decides where to take the child, and they took Joe's body to London. And then before they would release his body, three weeks later, they said we'd have to pay £100 to get his body back. And we said, but, you know, well, you took it. And in the end, we had to pay the £100. And there were also procedural things around the death certification, which nobody explained. After the kind of initial rapid response, I was completely left on my own to deal with it. And I just thought this, this could be done a lot better. So a lot of quite small things, like changes in the language, changes in some of the procedures, but then funnelling out to look at the bigger picture around why is it that that happened? and that parents are suddenly left in that way to deal with what's such a traumatic event. And then, on top of that, there's no research or anything about the impact on siblings. So that was presumably what prompted you then to go and actually look at this from 
academic perspective, sort of take a step out of it, if you like, and really analyse it and look at it. How did you go about that? Well, I decided that when my son went to school um, and I had a bit of time, I thought that it might be an interesting idea to try and see if I could do a PhD. (laughs) I'd already got an MA in social work and I'd been out of education for a long time. But I looked up some of the policy, what there was around sudden unexpected child death, and I came across a report called the Kennedy Report, which was a response to the release on appeal of three mothers who'd been imprisoned for killing their children and then were later discharged on appeal. And it it was found that there'd been all sorts of things that had happened in their cases. And, And one of the recommendations of the report was that it was imperative that professionals needed to learn what sort of emotions parents might be feeling, why they might behave like they do, which all seemed fantastic to me, except that that work hadn't been done. Parents hadn't actually been asked, they hadn't been included in the committee. And so as a former professional myself and as a parent with that experience, I thought maybe I could step into that space. It seemed to me that I was in a good place to start to maybe do some of that work. One of the interesting points you've just raised in your your talk there is is about... The, the personal experience impacting on the academic experience. What have you concluded from, from that? I think, in my opinion, everybody does research that interests them for some reason and there is usually some kind of ownership of that, some kind of personal ownership of that interest, whatever it is. So I think the notion that research is somehow objective and, and for people in white coats in labs, when, when it comes to research in the social sciences, people very often, more often than not, will do it because of a personal interest. But then they'll be too frightened to, to stake that personal interest because they get worried that it will invalidate the research or, or it'll look like they're too invested in the research. So my approach to it is actually now to, to just come out and say, here it is, <laughs> this is the story. You know, people will make of it what they will because they always will. Um, but for me, I think it's actually made my research a lot richer and it's deepened it into all sorts of areas and even some of the experiences that I've had and the reactions that I've had from people has, has added to the depth of that research. Let's talk a bit about the nitty-gritty then, what you actually did and how, how you went about it. Um, I interviewed, in the end, eight people who'd all experienced sudden, unexpected child death. Uh, There were seven women and one man. It's very difficult to get men to participate. All of them had, had an investigation, but without any charges being brought, that was very important. So what I did is I prepared a lot of information. I I put an advert on the website of three different charities saying that I'd had this experience myself, that I was hoping to do research into the field, and then I gave them an email address and people contacted me. And when they contacted me, I then sent them the information pack. Some people then decided they didn't want to take part. If they decided they did, we'd have a couple of phone conversations and then we'd agreed to do an interview and I went to interview people in all different parts of the country with the ranges since the death, ranging from 10 months at the time of interview to 21 years at the time of interview. And I interviewed everyone in their own home and it was a very open style of interviewing which just encouraged people to tell their own story. Uh, yeah, I'm interested in that from a methodological point of view. Is you, you must have thought long and hard about how you went about this, how you approached carrying out those interviews. 
I did. I followed in the end for the first part of my research. Um, I sort of departed from it at a later stage, but for the first part, I followed something called the biographic narrative interpretive method, and that's a, a psychosocial method that looks at the individual as an individual, but then contextualizes them within a cultural framework and, and that seemed to me to be perfect for my research and it's also it's a narrative method so it, it in, encourages people simply to tell their own story in their own words and then it looks at the way that they've told that and the impact of it being a research interview and it also in the first stage of analysis uses what are called data interpretation panels to help you as a researcher look at the interview and the transcripts in different ways. Now these panels posed some problems for you, didn't they, in terms of, of, of the way they responded to the information that you put in front of them? It wasn't so much that they posed problems, I think. They were very unexpected and, and I think they became an incredibly rich tool and one that I would use again and in fact in the end, rather than just being a part of my analysis, they actually became a part of my thesis. <laughs> so in my thesis, there is a bit devoted to the people themselves and then there's a bit devoted to what the panel said about them and then there's some analysis of what happened in the panels as well and then it's all kind of knitted together. So they didn't basically see the people in the interviews as I had seen them. Very often got very angry with the way that the stories were told and were very clearly very distressed and discomforted by the stories which again was interesting for me because I had the experience, so I hadn't been. And it was very interesting for me just to see how very distressed people got and then quite often very defended and quite angry with the, with the participants, which I hadn't been expecting. And then I ended up almost getting angry with them <laughs> and then moving beyond that to thinking, actually, what is going on here? What is going under the surface of this that is so intolerable for people to listen to? So it became an incredibly rich part of my work actually but but a very unexpected part I'm interested to know what people told you. There was a lot, obviously. Even with just a small number of people like that, you must have heard a lot of, lot of things. For you, what would you say are the key things, perhaps from a sort of a policy and practice point of view, if you like, that came out of your research? Very much a message about humanity. That was common across all the stories, which, as you say, are very long, that they're over very different periods of time. But they all followed a very similar pattern in many ways. They all started with some sort of temporal thing. They were located the death at a time. It was a Saturday morning or something like that. Then they would move on to talking about professionals and for some people there were professionals who stood out and, and the word that was used was that he was all right because he was human or they weren't all right because they weren't human so there's very much this notion of how we can allow professionals to use their humanity and not simply to hide behind or, or to forefront the procedure to be able to work with both there was things about how the language was used the child abuse investigation command which obviously people found very difficult very often the stories would move into a kind of medical context um, so again and there was things around the humanity of medical staff. And then after that, there were always periods when people would come home and they would talk about what had happened since in the intervening time. And one of the things that was common for all of the interviews was people said there was no closure. So they all wanted something from the police that said, you're not under suspicion anymore your case is closed, mm. and that isn't offered. So after all this extraordinary rapid response, people are just left in a kind of limbo. And one woman joked to me, every time I see a police car, I think that's it, they're coming for me. And also the thing around surviving children, that people felt quite shocked that there'd been this enormous investigation and then they were just left to get on with their surviving children without anyone really interested. And, and again, one of my participants said to me, even if I had murdered him, 
she said, shouldn't, shouldn't somebody be coming in here to help me? <laughs> My other children. And then I think moving on very much to wanting these stories, to wanting to make meaning from these stories. So wanting ways in which these stories can become part of our cultural discourse and not stories that are told only on internet forums or in harsh tones and whispered spaces, that, that people wanted their children's lives to make a difference and, and they wanted places where they could do that. Is your view, now that it's complete, that I know you've got future work to do, but is your view that there are some fairly simple things that could be done to change all of that, to change the experience that you and others have clearly had and treat people more fairly, more straightforwardly? I think it's very difficult for professionals because the duty for professionals is to treat all uh, sudden unexpected charges as if they're crimes and then they are told you have to balance that with sensitivity. Well, you know, that's a terribly difficult thing to ask anybody to do. So I think some training could help with that personally and from the people that I talk to, I think that should include parents in the training. There is a sort of superstition that you can't involve people who've lost a child because it'll be too upsetting for them and actually... You know, I wonder who it will be too upsetting for, whether sometimes it's too upsetting for the professionals, actually. So I think far more training, but then, yes, some, some very simple things, like just simply changing the language. I often say, why don't you just call them child death teams? That's what's happened. The child's died. The child abuse team, that's still, you know, very open to question. And, and in most cases, actually, it's not abuse. Obviously, in some it is. Then again, the thing about closure, you know, it would be very easy for the police to send out a letter or something that just gave people the sense they weren't under suspicion for the rest of their lives and they weren't going to lose their children. And mm. So yes, some very small things and then some bigger things like training professionals and also I think you know, much more death education, much more moving that out into a culture that's still very frightened of talking about child death as well. So for you, is, is that where both the personal and the professional story go from here? Yeah. Absolutely. We're currently waiting to hear about a bid that we've put in, myself and a colleague, looking at the impact on professionals of sudden unexpected child death. So a piece of work that mirrors exactly what I did with parents and to help professionals by looking at what is, what is so difficult for them in the task and how can they be supported to do that better. And for me, I would like part of that to be somewhere where parents and professionals could actually talk to each other. So there wasn't this sort of split as if one were people and one weren't or vice versa. And also we're hoping to look within social work courses because I, I work within a social work department. There's no death education within mainstream social work courses. And yet, of course, death comes into pretty much every part <laughs> that you can think of in, in bigger or lesser ways. So we're, we're looking at, at trying to develop something for that as well. Telling the story, what can be learned from parents' experiences of the professional response following the sudden unexpected death of a child is Dr Denise Turner's PhD research and was part of a presentation on Telling the Untellable, researching emotionally challenging and sensitive topics at the ESRC Research Methods Festival 2014.